please stay tuned to the end of this program or see the show notes for important information regarding today's speakers and the content of this podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Allergy Talk, a roundup of the latest in the field of allergy and immunology by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For today's episode, we will be reviewing three articles from the May-June 2020 issue of Allergy Watch, a bi-monthly publication which provides research summaries to college members from the major journals in allergy and immunology. You can also learn CME credit by listening to this podcast for information about CME or to read archive issues of Allergy Watch, head over to college.acaai.org slash publications slash Allergy Watch. Well, hello everyone. My name is Jerry Lee. I'm an associate professor at Emory University and a assistant editor for Allergy Watch and the co-host of this podcast. And as always, I'm joined by my other co-host, Dr. Marin Kalangara. Hello, I'm Marin Kalangara, and I'm an assistant professor of allergy and immunology at Emory University. And once again, we are joined by our third co-host, Dr. Stan Feynman. Welcome, Stan. Thank you, Jerry, and uh, it's good to be here. I'm uh, in practice here in Atlanta, and I'm uh, an adjunct faculty at Emory, and I'm a past president of the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, and I happen to be the current editor-in-chief of Allergy Watch. And so we have another great lineup of articles for you. Uh, we'll be doing two episodes. The first one are focusing on food allergy and anaphylaxis. So I'll just get the ball rolling. So uh, the title of this article is Earlier Ingestion of Peanut After Changes to Infant Feeding Guidelines, the Early Nut Study. So it's hard to believe but the LEAP study was published back in 2015. It's been five years. I, you know, we're just, I, I remember sitting in the audience of the Academy when they announced this, the study and, and the, the horrible joke I tell everyone is that the whole audience and social media went nuts because <laughs> the, 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 the fine, I know that's, I'm a dad now, so I can do those dad jokes because it was amazing how much of a difference early introduction made to peanut allergy at age five. And now do we know what to do? But five years later, what we're struggling with is the implementation of this guideline. And some of the articles that have come up since is lack of knowledge amongst family members or practitioners. And then on the other side, over-testing or you know, panel testing, testing low-risk patients. And there was two directions that went simultaneously in terms of the implementation. There's certainly what we're doing, according to the National Institute of Health, the United States, which is screening of high-risk infants with IgE or skin testing. But then there's the direction that Australia went. And so that's what they're describing in this paper. So that this, the decision-making through Australia was the significant cost of testing for peanut and potentially egg prior to early introduction in the high risk and the availability of allergists in the region. So they made the recommendation in implementation of the 2016 guidelines to recommend that introduction, but without testing of the high risk population. And so in order to study the effect of this, they compared 
infants who are enrolled in a study called early nuts, which basically was, you know, infants around one year of age coming in for their vaccinations to be observed in an observational cohort versus some of the core observational studies they did on food allergy earlier, which was the health nuts cohorts. And, you know, they had thousands of infants between 2007 to 2011 and compared their food introduction and allergic reactions to the early nut study. So essentially what they did is that they had this data set between November 2016 and October of 2018 that tried to determine the number of infants who introduced peanut and egg. And what they found was, was very striking. So in the original health nut study, prior to the LEAP study, the number of infants who were introducing peanut early uh, in the first year of life was 28.4%. But incredibly, with the early nuts cohort, what they found is that number raised to 88.6%. We're saying nine out of 10 infants in Australia were introducing peanut in the first year of life. And I can tell you by personal experience and some of the preliminary data in the United States, that just blows the U.S. out of the water, just completely blows it out of the water. Now, egg did have a shift toward early introduction that was significant as well, but most infants in Australia were introducing egg in their first year of life. Eventually, maybe they just did a little bit earlier when you compare the health nut study to the early nut study. Now, the first thing you'd ask is, well, you're doing this potentially without testing. What about reactions? So they did look at reactions. And in the health nut study prior to the introduction of the guidelines, about 2.4% of infants had some sort of allergic reaction. Um, Mostly skin or gut were reported. But in the early nut study, that increased to 4%. Now, same thing, it is mainly skin or gut reactions. There maybe was two cases of wheezing that was reported and and so on. And so of the 25 infants who did react, of the 12 who tried it again, five of them were able to tolerate on the second try, though seven did have repeat reactions. Now, what is the cause of of this massive success of early peanut introduction that dwarfs what we've been doing in the United States. Well, interestingly, every single infant and family in Australia is offered a maternal and child health nurse. This is a free service uh, sponsored by the Australian Department of Education where they support and give information to families who have children under six years of age. They might talk about breastfeeding, nutrition, weaning, development, and there's multiple visits that might go on. In the first three and a half years, they might visit them 10 times. So there's many touch points to reinforce this information, to answer questions, to be supported. And it's this result of this public health initiative that seemed to have driven this change. About 68% of the early nuts cohorts stated these maternal and child health nurses was the primary source of their information. Now, a guess for both of you, if you had to list sources of information, where do you think allergists were? 
I'm guessing pretty low. Probably very take low. Take a guess. <laughs> <laughs> just take a guess. I'm just, I just Well, they may not have as many allergists in Australia, so. That is true. Okay. So <laughs> I'll wait for differences. Uh, the primary source of information about early introduction was 68.1% for the maternal and child health nurses. Allergists, 1.6%. Wow. Pediatrician, 5%. So if we think about how this outreach is occurring, is actually independent of doctor's visits. This is more of a public health outreach initiative rather than the traditional office visit. And so, you know, that has implications because it's possible then the long-term implications of a 90% adherence to the early guidelines is a significant drop of peanut allergy. We'll see how that pans out. But that's certainly not what's happening in the United States to the same degree by far. And in fact, there is some preliminary data suggesting that panel testing is being done rather than peanut alone testing, which may be actually having the opposite effect if we are identifying peanut allergy and other food allergies by panel testing when we really only were intending to test peanuts. So we're going to have to wait to see the data shakes out. But I thought it was just impressive you know, the two different directions and how much of a difference public health investment makes for these initiatives. That is certainly the take home, I think, for this uh, article. I think public health initiatives are critical. I mean, it doesn't say how many of these are first time parents or this is the first, the oldest child. But, you know, just I remember when our kids were little, I mean, uh, you know, we needed help. Fortunately, I was in pediatric training. So you know, I had a little uh, a leg up, so to speak, uh, compared to our neighbors and things. But, uh, you know, even my wife was coming to me with uh, questions, you know, how do you deal with this? So I think people want good information. They want reliable source and, uh, you know, a, a public health nurse or a public health trained, uh, you know, uh, communicator can certainly help with that. I mean, we know they help in other chronic illnesses you know, help them handle other chronic illnesses when there's a uh, health nurse or a health coordinator communicating with patients about their follow-up or about how to take their medications and things like that. So I'm not surprised. It's just, um, you know, I guess we just need to get with the, you know, get with the program and, you know. So one thing I noticed is that the children in the study were not stratified uh, by the degree of risk. Like, so it talks about how many kids had eczema, but there was no stratification further into but they had severe eczema or mild eczema. Yeah, so I, I think they just said, no matter what the risk, go ahead and introduce it. Right, yeah. So Just uh, go for it. <laughs> yeah, and they also point out in the discussion sort of the economic ramifications of screening um, for before peanut introduction, and they estimate annual costs of about $654 million U.S. dollars. And, you know, yeah, I'm not sure what that means for the United States, right. but you know, it's possible that if, especially if you sort of add up some of the downstream effects of testing too, and the challenge in mm -hmm. office challenges and so on, that may not be me far off. We'd have to see. I, I would have to look at the details of that calculation though. So I think other than prevention, some of the other things that we're responsible for was protecting our patients from reactions. So Marin, you have a very interesting article about cofactors we should be worried about for food allergic reactions. Yes. So this paper was published in Jackie last year, and it 
I think you reviewed it in Allergy Watch, Jerry. It looks at the role of cofactors in decreasing the dose reaction threshold among peanut allergic patients and specifically examines the influence of two different cofactors, exercise and one that I actually never thought of as a cofactor, um, sleep deprivation. This was a multi-center randomized crossover study out of the United Kingdom where patients with a challenge-confirmed peanut allergy underwent three further open challenges and that were randomly assigned, one with exercise, one with sleep deprivation on the night preceding the challenge, and one with neither intervention. And they performed these challenges with peanut flour and a maximum dose of one gram of peanut protein. And since this was a multi-center challenge, the two centers coordinated their challenges and their protocols so as to use a common approach to score the challenge reactions and when to stop performing the protocols. For exercise, they used a 10-minute bout of exercise on a stationary bike, five minutes after each dose. And for the sleep deprivation challenges, they actually admitted participants to the research board the night before the challenge. And subjects were allowed to sleep for only two hours and then kept awake until the challenge. The primary outcome was the threshold dose of peanut protein that elicited a reaction. And I thought these findings were pretty interesting. While they found a mean reactivity threshold of 214 milligrams of peanut protein for a participant overall, and that's approximately equivalent to about one peanut, what they found was that both exercise as well as sleep deprivation independently caused a 45% reduction in this dose threshold. And they also determined a population threshold of 1.5 milligrams and 6.7 milligrams to elicit reactions in 1% and 10% of the population. And they refer to these numbers as the ED1 and the ED10 respectively. And sleep deprivation decreased the ED1 from 1.5 milligrams to 0.5 milligrams And similarly, exercise decreased the ED1 from 1.5 milligrams to 0.3 milligrams. Uh, The authors go on to postulate that maybe sleep deprivation exerts its influence through a stress response that can affect the immune system and the gastrointestinal system. And they've pointed out that in animal models of inflammatory bowel disease, stress can actually result in increased intestinal permeability. And this may result in a potential increase in the absorption of food allergens, resulting in a decrease in threshold. And similarly, exercise also uh, decreases blood flow to the gut. The resultant ischemia can cause a compromise in epithelial integrity and increase permeability to food allergens. The study sort of just adds to the emerging literature on the importance of cofactors Uh, that are increasingly being implicated in food and drug-induced anaphylaxis, um, such as exercise, alcohol, NSAIDs, um, PPIs, and hormones. The authors also point out that the study may facilitate the optimization of guidelines for precautionary allergen labeling in the food industry. And this is especially important in times like these with those recent um, guidelines by the FDA permitting more flexibilities in food allergy or food labeling requirements rather. And this flexibility may actually increase the risk for inadvertent exposure to allergenic foods. And the findings of the study become even more compelling with the recent approval of palforzia. So, you know, I was wondering, in addition to telling patients not to exercise surrounding ingestion, 
do you think that we should be warning them of the potential effects of like stress slash sleep deprivation on perhaps reducing the eliciting dose for a reaction? Well, we're just in a unique situation as an academic medical center. People do drive quite a while to reach our office. And, you know, based on nervousness or a long travel, you know, those could be food challenges. Those could be updosing visits on patient on oral immunotherapy. And sleep deprivation as a cofactor, I think, is fair game, especially when historically some of our first appointments were 740 in the morning. They still are. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So it just kind of gives me pause when I think about doing a oral immunotherapy program where potentially we're trying to updose someone when their reactivity threshold could be lowered because of sleep deprivation. Stan, I don't know if you've seen this in your practice. Well, we haven't really looked at sleep deprivation, but now we will. And I think you need to advise people, not just for food challenges, but what about subcutaneous immunotherapy as well? Um, You know, we do caution people not to exercise uh, after they get their allergy injection. And um, so, and of course, with the food um, dosing with uh, uh, oral immunotherapy like palforzia, so I think that this is fascinating, and I think it's a uh, something that should be on our radar screen and, and does impact our clinical practice. So uh, I'm, I'm glad you, t- you brought it up. Well, once we have, God forbid, an allergic reaction, we always need the tools to treat it. And Stan, I think you've selected a very interesting article of maybe the future of anaphylaxis treatment. Okay, so I selected this article that was in the, uh, the journal Clinical Experimental Allergy, uh, and that's the beauty of uh, Allergy Watch because that clinical experimental allergy is not one that I generally review. But uh, this article was reviewed, in fact, by Dr. Josie, who is one of our new reviewers uh, up in, uh, in Portland, Oregon. And the title of it is Treatment with a Platelet Activating Factor Receptor Antagonist Improves Hemodynamics and Reduces Epinephrine Requirements in a Lethal Rodent Model of Anaphylactic Shock. So... We know that anaphylactic shock uh, is mediated through a variety of mediators. And the study that I recall was in 2008 and was published in New England Journal of Medicine when it first came to light that platelet activating factor was of critical importance in the severity of anaphylaxis. At that time, and that one of the co-authors of that study was Dr. Estelle Simons, uh, who was you know, one of the hallmark um, experts in anaphylaxis. And what they found was that in the patients who had anaphylaxis, and these were patients who were seen uh, and they had, they had anaphylactic uh, reactions, and they measured the platelet activating factor and also the platelet activating uh, acetylhydrolase activity, which is you know, what de- you know, decomp- decomposes the platelet activating factor. But the bottom line is the more platelet activating factor is released in the patients who had the most severe reactions. So patients who had milder reactions had less platelet activating factor. Patients with more severe reactions had more platelet activating factor released. So these uh, researchers, mostly from Denmark, uh, where they're developing this product, which is called ABT491, which is a platelet activating factor receptor antagonist, um, are using this and trying to see if it can be useful uh, for treatment of, of uh, anaphylaxis. And obviously you can't do this in humans, but you could do it in rats. And that's what they did. They divided these rats into five groups. One of them 
uh, had sham. They called it a sham um, a group because all they got was a vehicle. They didn't get any kind of uh, uh, shock. And then another group got shocked. In other words, they had uh, they were sensitized to ovalbumin, and then they were given ovalbumin and induced uh, anaphylaxis. So one definitely got anaphylaxis. The other group got the ABT, which is the platelet activating uh, factor, you know, antagonist product. And then another group got epinephrine, and that was given first as a bolus and then as an infusion. And then the other, the last group got both treatments, the epinephrine and the uh, platelet activating factor together. So uh, the reason they had to use a sham group is because the, the animals had to be prepared. They inserted a catheter into the coronary artery of these rats to measure their uh, systolic and diastolic pressure and their mean uh, arterial pressure. And basically they wanted to figure out the uh, uh, ionotropism uh, or whether the force of the uh, heart muscle was affected because we know that's affected in anaphylaxis. We know it's a, it's a factor. Uh, so um, that's the way they set up the study. So they had the sham, which is the one who didn't get any ovalbumin. They were just sitting there. They had the shocked ones that got the ovalbumin, but no treatment. They got the group that had platelet uh, activating factor antagonist, and they got the epinephrine, and they got the group with both of them together. So the results were, you know, really, I think, very, very compelling. And the, and the graphs are a little bit confusing, but the bottom line was that the treatment with the um, ABT uh, prevented the decrease in left ventricle shortening fraction uh, compared to the group that had no treatment, obviously. Uh, and the dose of epinephrine required to treat anaphylactic shock was a 314 with the uh, ABT plus epinephrine versus 475 in the group that got epinephrine alone. So the bottom line was a, you needed less epinephrine when you use the ABT combined with epinephrine uh, in treatment of the uh, groups with had anaphylaxis. So in terms of the mean arterial pressure uh, recovery, it was 13 minutes with the platelet activating factor plus epinephrine versus a double that, almost 23 minutes when you use the platelet activating factor by itself. So there was a synergistic effect when you used epinephrine and the uh, platelet activating factor. So, you know, I think that's the, the bottom line. That's a take home. And I think that maybe eventually we'll be seeing some sort of adjunct to epinephrine. We know epinephrine is very, uh, it's, it's effective for, for anaphylaxis, but it's got a lot of side effects. It has detrimental effects on the heart. It has other detrimental effects. Any of the bottom line is if you can reduce the dose of epinephrine with a product such as a platelet activating factor antagonist, then it could be uh, really very, very helpful in treatment of our patients who have anaphylaxis. So I thought it was an interesting study. We don't usually talk about rats, but um, maybe someday we'll be using this in humans. Who knows? I thought this was very interesting, especially because of the association that with PAF that's been sort of reproduced and reinforced through the years. Um, I think one of um, Dr. Joshi's main comments in uh, the Allergy Watch review was the possible like ethical concerns about using an agent like this in human trials of anaphylaxis. And, you know, it just made me wonder whether the, something like this would have a role in maybe preventing anaphylaxis in patients with idiopathic anaphylaxis or patients with Massal activation and recurrent episodes of anaphylaxis. You know, the, that's an interesting question, but I don't think that I'm not sure um, 
how long the duration of action is for this platelet activating factor. Got My it, impression yeah. is it's a short acting uh, product. It, so mm -hmm. I do not know the answer to that. That's a good question though. But it's intriguing, right? I mean, yeah. if it doesn't really have any side effects compared to epinephrine, right. I mean, it, I think using it more often or higher doses or as prophylaxis definitely makes a lot of sense to me. And I just like looked it up cursorily and it looks like they are doing trials of these agents in malignancies of some kinds as well. Oh, interesting. So it has anti-tumor effects as well? Uh, apparently. Oh, goodness gracious. Uh, now I have to really read more about platelet activating factor. Because <laughs> I know the study you're talking about, Stan, but I, it was one of those things where, okay, but I'm not sure what to do with it. Now it sounds like we have something to do it use that information with. So that's exciting. Well, we need to keep this on our radar screen. I, I, I don't think it's ready for prime time, but um, I, and I think you're going to need to see it used in as an adjunct. I don't think because when you looked at the uh, animals that had the um, platelet activating factor alone, uh, they didn't do that well. They were similar to the ones that had shock. So, uh, Got it. And, and certainly it'd be, as you talked about the ethical issues of withholding a treatment, that standard of care, certainly we don't see that happening ever. Right. Well, those were some really great articles and I hope you found this helpful. If you did, please rate our podcast on iTunes and we're always interested in feedback, corrections, or suggestions. Send all your feedback to allergytalk, one word at acaai.org. Have a wonderful day, everyone. The ACAAI is presenting this podcast for educational purposes only. It is not medical advice or intended to replace the judgment of a licensed physician. The college is not responsible for any claims related to procedures, professionals, products, or methods discussed in the podcast, and it does not approve or endorse any products, professionals, services, or methods that might be referenced. The today's speakers have the following disclosures. Drs. Lee and Dr. Kangara have nothing to disclose, and Dr. Feynman has been a speaker for AZBI and Shire and has done research for AIMU, DBV, Shire, and Regeneron.